You're listening to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring the best live talks from the Sydney Opera House. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby, and on the podcast today is another live talk from Antidote 2018. Islam is often reduced to fear-ridden cliches by Western media. Sensational headlines and inflammatory comments spark hostility, while the actual lives of many contemporary Muslims are ignored or misunderstood. After rejecting religious extremism as a young man, Ed Hussain now defines himself as a moderate Muslim and works advising governments and leaders on how to deal with radicalisation in their communities. In an event called Islam in the Free World, he was in conversation with journalist Fauzia Ibrahim. So the issues that we're going to be talking about today is something that I've always grappled with and still do to, to this day. Uh, so just bear with me for, for a little bit as I go into my past. Um, there is a, a, a particular sound that brings me back to my childhood. Um, and it's a sound, it's a song that I always associate with sleepy movements just before dawn, uh, quiet gatherings in the evening, at certain periods uh, of the year. In a particular month, it signals the end of a day's fasting and the start of communal feasting, and it's a lovely, lovely time. It's called the Azan. Muslims know it as the Azan, uh, or the call to prayer. It rings out and it calls Muslims to unite uh, in their worship of God. Now, I will admit that in my later years, I have not heeded this call because, you know, sometimes it's a little too difficult to leave the embrace of a nice warm bed that early in the morning, or sometimes there's just too many things to do during the course of the day to heed this call. However, I still am able to appreciate and recognize that this call to prayer reminds us to unite in appreciating a cause that is greater than our humdrum daily life of being stuck in traffic in the supermarket shopping. Now, even if you're not Muslim, you will still be able to recognize the first line of the Azan because it's become part of our news cycle. It was soon after September 11, 2001 uh, that I realized that this line that I've only ever heard spoken lovingly, melodiously, and, and softly, that it could also be shouted angrily, violently, and savagely. That's where I was confused, and I still am today, confused as to how anyone can utter this one line so viciously. Now, every time there's an attack, myself, and I think every other Muslim in the world, our first thought is, For that first hour, when there are no details, there is that feeling of dread. And then the details start coming in. There was a bomb, a stabbing, a car was involved, a van was involved, many people dead. Something was uttered in Arabic, angrily. And at that time, you feel, as a Muslim, this dread, because you know, dread and confusion, because you're confused, how, how can this happen? And then a dread, because you know that at somehow, at some point, you, even though you're miles away, will be associated with what just happened. Because 
of your identity. Now, our collective Muslim hearts around the world sink because we can't understand how our beliefs can be associated with such bloody violence. And we also dread the association. Our guest today uh, says that it is up to the moderate Muslims, the ones who do feel that dread, to break that association and to expel those who choose to utter the first line of the azan in anger. Please make welcome the author of the House of Islam, Ed Hussein. Congratulations on a brilliant book, by the way. Um, now, in every interview I've ever heard of you, they always start with, you say the house of Islam is on fire, and I'm going to start the same way. The house of Islam, you say the house of Islam is on fire, and the arsonists are the extremists. You, at one point, was attracted to these extremist ideologies. Explain to us what is the attraction. Well, firstly, thank you for reading the book and uh, endorsing it. Thank you for all of you for being here on a Sunday morning in particular. I appreciate that. Uh, I think Australia is just about 52% Christian. Being at the Opera House on a Sunday morning, talking about Islam uh, <laughs> as opposed to elsewhere. Um, I'm not judging you, I'm just saying thank you. I appreciate that. Um, the attractions to extremism or the, the group belonging to a much bigger purpose, I think is something innate to humans, the desire for belonging, the desire to want to have something that's bigger than the individual. Um, but growing up in the UK, uh, the, 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 the desire was multifold. First, it was triggered, I think, by the news agenda, the news cycle. So what was going on in Palestine and at that time in Bosnia, wanting to find solutions as a 16, 17-year-old and not finding compelling and convincing solutions from the normal political parties who just would not address the difficult uh, political challenges. So the news agenda was one. Secondly, the solutions that were offered by extremist organizations, politicized organizations, were attractive because they were revolutionary, they had a very black and white narrative. If there is an army killing Muslims in various parts of the world, well, we need an army that stands up for Muslims and that army would be the caliph's army or a caliphate that would create an army to liberate Muslims from around the world. Um, a similar rhetoric to that which came out of the Soviet Union or indeed uh, Nazi Germany, the, the supremacist, the confrontational, um, that was attractive. But I think also for an entire generation, and I wasn't alone by the way, there were thousands of us, for an entire generation of young Muslims across the West in, in the 1990s and to this day now, there are challenges around belonging, integration, and uh, just just feeling that you're worthy, that y this land is indeed yours, that you have a claim on its soil, that you are indeed a daughter or son of this soil, and you're not, you're not, you're not an outsider. And I think in the, in the UK, in those 1990s and 2000s, th there was a feeling that Muslims did not necessarily belong, or whether they were indeed Brits or not. Now, that, you know, my generation and a generation younger now, We've overcome that. There is a greater sense of belonging and purpose in the UK. And yes, there are outposts of racism, but by and large, I mean, you, know, you wake up in the morning and you know, Michelle Hussein is on the radio. You know, the, the news is probably dominated by uh, uh, you know, the Home Secretary who has a Muslim background. So Muslims are now part and parcel of the fabric of the UK. So the story is different. It doesn't mean extremism has gone away. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the attractions. And I think the most important attraction, in addition to the socioeconomic draw, is the religious factor mm. that 
even if you kill, it's done in the name of God. So if you're killing Jews in Israel, oh, it's done. So you're answering to a higher call. There's, there's uh, a and therefore cause. you're absorbed mm. uh, from any, uh, any responsibility. So the religious justification that came out from especially many of the uh, Arab extreme organizations that were there had a scriptural underwrite to it. And that was appealing for those of us at that point that did not read Arabic. Now, The House of Islam is, is a book and the House of Islam being on fire, the title doesn't come from me, and I should confess that from the very beginning. Uh, you know, a Muslim scholar that I look up to immensely, probably the only Muslim scholar in the Arab world and in the Muslim world more extensively that speaks and writes in French, therefore understands Rousseau, Voltaire, uh, and the implications of the, of the French and European Enlightenment process, but also deeply rooted in Arabic, Sheikh Abdullah bin Bayya. He, at multiple events, has said the House of Islam is on fire, and all of us around the world, from all civilizations and cultures, have a responsibility to put that fire out. Mm -hmm. And unless we do so, the fire will spread. And I'll end this answer by saying that the occasional terrorism that you see visited in the West causes headlines and it causes fear, but it is occasional. Contrast that to the daily lived reality of 1.7 billion Muslims under this regime of terrorism and fear and collectivism that you can't say this because you're stepping outside the norms. You can't think this because you're, you're, you're going to lead into a blasphemous territory if you express it. Women can't behave like this because if they do so, you'll be upsetting the religious hierarchy and the clerics. That's the daily fear and literalist extremism that then leads to terrorism. So I, I, I put to you that you know, just in Pakistan, over 50,000 Muslims have been killed in the last 10 years. Uh, yes, we've had terrorism in the West, but it doesn't, the numbers just don't equate. So yes, the House of Islam is on fire, and unless we put the fire out, all of us, you know, we've got to take sides in this ideational battle line. I'm afraid the fire will spread. So the book is an offer to better understand Islam for people who aren't necessarily engaged in the daily debates, so that you can decide which side you want to be on. You know, you talk about uh, this feeling of, of not belonging in a particular country, a particular nation, uh, and so this need for this caliph, this creation of this caliph, so that you can all feel as one and serve a, a larger cause, I suppose. Explain to us this need to create a caliphate. Is it a revival of Islamic glory? Is it a case of, of needing to belong to something? Uh, or is it a, a reclaim of Islamic identity? That's a great question. You know, if you asked me that 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago, okay, neither of us were born then, but that debate was there, most people would say, oh yeah, the caliphate, it's no longer relevant, uh, it's now firmly in the past, mm. and perhaps would have moved on. 10 years ago, if you said that there are attempts to revive a caliphate, you know, I was in the position of being accused of being an alarmist. Now, post-ISIS, it no longer looks like it was something that was abstract. You know, the beheadings, the amputations, the stonings, the throwing gay people off cliffs, the enforcement of religious dress codes on women, and, uh, and, and the bigotry and the homophobia. I mean, all of that's real and all of that is justified with one reading of scripture. Yes, there is an element of we are not the West, we will do everything different from the West. Mm. But the, the, the caliphate and their calls for it are justified with a particular reading of scripture, which is not the normative mainstream Muslim reading of it. And it's, it's just first understanding that element, that they, they act on a religious obligation. They say that unless you have a caliphate, every Muslim is sinful, and therefore it's an obliga obligatory duty on every Muslim mm. to work towards a caliphate. Now, those of us who are younger and believed in that, narrative then work towards it and eventually you know the, the kind of scholars that I mentioned earlier you quite quickly see through it 
Um, but many haven't, and many believe that it is a religious obligation. What's, what's worse is that there is, there is then a historical narrative that goes along uh, with this argument of the religious obligation that says there was always a caliphate, that Muslims always were united under one caliphate. You know, a cursory reading of history tells you that's just not the case. A lot of people would, s would point to the Ottoman Empire, though, yeah, and, and say, that, well, that's a caliphate. I, I was going to come to that. Um, so, uh, you know, even in the early days, uh, it's remarkable when the Prophet Muhammad passed away, he did not appoint a caliph. <laughs> of the first four caliphs, three of them were murdered. On the last caliphate, and even on the first caliphate, there were multiple claims to it. The caliphate killed the grandson of the Prophet Muhammad, mm. Imam, Imam Hussein. Mm. I mean, what kind of a caliphate kills the grandson, the beloved grandson of the Prophet. The Umayyads were a caliphate. Simultaneously, we had caliphates set up in Andalusia in Spain. Uh, at the time of the Ottomans, you mentioned, and, and it happens throughout history, we also had the Mughals in India who claimed to be uh, Amir or Khilafah of sorts. You know, a, a Sultan of Dillullahi fil Ard they talked about. Now, the, the Sultan is the shade of... I mean, you had a similar caliphate or an emirate in place in, in, in North Africa and in Persia. So even in last... 800 years we've had four concurrent caliphates not to mention Indonesia and not to mention what was going on in uh, in sub-Saharan Africa so you could argue about six so it's just historically it doesn't make sense now I'll come to the Ottomans with this last part it's just politically we have all got to understand a very important point and that is when the Soviet Union was revived a lot of that was kind of returned to Russian glory the Bolsheviks and others spoke about a greater Russian re reinstatement of glory why because in this first world war uh, by 1919, uh, the, 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 the House of Romanovs were, was completely obliterated. You know, the, 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 old of the old empires were gone. Um, the, 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 the Germans emerged as a desire with Adolf Hitler and others to reinstate German glory throughout the 1920s, 30s, and the bulk of the 40s. Why? Because after the First World War, the Treaty of Versailles ensured that Germany was carved up. The House of Habsburg no longer existed, so there was a desire to recreate German glory. Well, the house of the Ottomans was also destroyed in 1919. 18 plus countries emerged in the Middle East because of the, 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 the reduction to just Turkey. What happened from that? We also have a form of totalitarianism and a demand to recreate a caliphate. So, uh, you know, unfortunately, that was part of the, uh, the, the consequence of the destruction of the great empires that there is now a desire among activists lately to recreate an empire. Okay, sure. We've seen the Indian Empire rise and fall. We've seen the Chinese Empire rise and fall now rising again. Uh, we've seen many great nations, as you've said, you know, rise and fall. Why is the Muslim nation the only nation that decides, right, we're, we're going to do this, we're going to make it rise again, but in a violent way? Why is there a need to co-opt violence? Bernard Lewis, God rest his soul, he passed away earlier this year. We may disagree with some of his uh, contemporary political comments, but as a historian, I mean, he was first class. And he makes a very important point and it speaks to your question directly, in that wherever Muslims went historically, I mean, we were a warrior people, um, we were a conquering people. Yes, we also had a hearts and minds campaign through mm. mysticism and Sufism, but the fact that we were in Spain for almost 800 years as a minority ruling over a majority, mm. the fact that we were in India as a minority uh, Mughals ruling over a majority Hindu and other you know, Jains and Sikhs and other denominations, the fact that for the first 300 or, or so years in Persia, in Egypt, in Syria, we were the ruling class, the minority. Over time, people converted. Um, but 
there is something to be said about having this elitist mindset that we and we alone must control and dominate. That's why India and Pakistan had to partition, mm -hmm. because there's something in the Muslim DNA, at least until that time, that said we can't have a world in which Muslims are not the dominant force. Because the, the assumption was, how can an Arabian prophet come out from the year 623, and by the time he passes away, and after that, within the 100 years, the known world for the Arabs then was conquered? Because it was believed Muslims were blessed and Muslims were on the, on the capital T true path. Now something has changed and therefore we've got to bring the world back to Muslim domination. Without it, somehow the world is in the wrong place. So Does that mean then adopting again that warrior position? Well, the extremists and the terrorists would go that far. But I, 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 I would just like to say that what's happened in the world is that we are now living in a completely different uh, and, and a reshaped world. The fact that you know, we as Muslims can live, 30 million of us, in the West as free citizens, you know, without any curtailment on our religious obligations, means that the old model of this is the, the, this is the house of Islam and everything else is the house of war or conquest outside it, that paradigm has ended. And the Muslim scholars that I refer to in the book um, extensively ac explain that. The problem with the extremists and terrorists is they don't believe that the world has changed. Mm. They've got to go back to a, a pre-enlightenment world where they, again, are, are at the center of it and they are controlling and expanding and domineering and destroying in their wake. And, and by the way, destroying ordinary Muslims who disagree with them. So we are essentially you know, the, the first lamb to sacrifice or the first mm. line of defense, whichever mm. way you look at it. But I would also like to say that on this question of um, uh, Muslims not being able to accept the modern world, what we're beginning to see is new signs of, of understanding what citizenship and coexistence means. This is very important. The reason why ISIS targets the West is because that model of that, that what they call the gray zone mm. in which you can be fully Muslim and fully Western without a clash of civilizations, without being at odds. That model is under threat from ISIS and the, f uh, uh, and the Islamist extremists on the one side and the rise of the far right on the other that want to end this gray zone of coexistence and that we're forced into taking sides and saying, you know what, Muslims don't have a place in the modern world, send them back to wherever they came from, and you know what, there you know, they can have their caliphate and whatnot. What that mm. allows is for the fascists and the far right, as well as the Islamist extremists to win. And that's why it's very important that we're, as civil society, cognizant of that. Uh, just one other very quick mm. point, if I may, is that this talk of sharia and the, and the desire for a caliphate, why the caliphate? Because the caliphate is going to implement a certain kind of sharia. And without that sharia, all Muslims are sinful. And without a caliphate, Muslims are under... This, uh, we talked about the narrative. But it's, uh, it's something that I go into in the book, is that the sharia has ultimately five objectives. And that's what it's all about. You know, the, the, the allegations of uh, punishment, capital punishment, are designed to ensure those five objectives. From you know, the early days of Islam, Imam al-Juwaini down for the last 900 years, We've had these five objectives upheld by every Muslim government. And wherever there is a government that upholds these five objectives is a Sharia-compliant government. So societies in which you preserve religious freedom, the right of the individual to, th to, 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 to be f uh, an intellectual or, or the pursuit of knowledge, um, the, the private property, security, and there's one other which I forget now, but there are five, and that's, that's in the book, a family you know, the preservation of the family, absolutely important to Muslim civilizations. Those five, if they're kept in place, it's a Sharia-compliant government. And I've got news for you. By that definition, Sharia is already here in Australia. You are a Sharia-compliant government. There is no need to be creating Sharia. I'm sorry it sounds like bad news for Pauline Hansen and others, <laughs> but 
ultimately Muslims are free and they should be left alone and we should keep what we've, we've got and uh, conserve what we have. Depends on which government you're talking about. You realize we've just had a, a leadership spill. <laughs> just over I'm a foreigner here, I can't <laughs> get involved in. <laughs> um, so it's a halal government in Australia? That's fantastic, that's, that's, that's good. One question I want to ask you though, and you know, you talk about Sharia and, and uh, you know, whenever Sharia is reported in the Australian media in particular, everybody sort of goes, oh my God, don't say that word, because it's scary, because you talk about, you know, stoning, you talk about beheading, that's part, uh, everybody says that that is part of the Sharia law. Is Islam and democracy compatible? Absolutely. Um, on, on a, a, a lot of people don't seem to think so because of the Sharia laws. Yeah, but the Sharia laws, laws I mean, we, we approach it in the wrong way. I mean, Sharia, firstly, is not law. Uh, and that's been the s sadly the m major narrative around it. Um, sharia is a pathway to water. That's what it literally means. Uh, and you know, from John Locke onwards, if you approach sharia as natural law, what we already have in the West completely overlaps with that. And we've got to approach legal theory through that direction, that it is natural law. It is something that completely overlaps. I mean, Muslim scholars have talked about the fact that Edward Pocock was John Locke's teacher. Pocock was exposed to what I just highlighted in terms of maqasid al-sharia, that upholding those five objectives, and any government that upholds them is already uh, sharia compliant. Um, democracy is not just I uh, elections, and this is, I think, the danger in many Muslim countries that they think that just holding the election, and then if the Muslim Brotherhood wins, mm. oh, it's a democracy, how dare you mm. question us? No. Democracy is not just a ballot box, that's just a process. Democracy is an entire culture. Democracy is an entire vibrant and free special media. Democracy is an openness, it's gender equality, it's individual freedom, it's uh, racial parity, it's the, the ability to think freely and question your rulers. And in that spirit, can we question our rulers? Yes, Sayyidina Omar in a mosque was questioned, and, mm. uh, and he even asked, what if, I don't, what if I don't do what you're asking me to do? The people in the congregation said, we will punish you. You know, Sayyidina Aisha, the prophet's wife, led an army against Imam Ali because she thought he was fundamentally unjust. So that spirit exists within Islam. Is it, therefore, French-style, secular, Jeffersonian democracy yet? No. But can we coexist with a democratic spirit? And, and uh, you know, by the way, Sorry, go on, you have a question to Yeah, ask. I do. I, I I can <laughs> sorry, carry on. I'm itching, yeah. itching yeah, to yeah, ask. Yeah. Explain to us then, why is it that Islamic nations, the main Islamic nations, I'm talking about Saudi Arabia, mainly the Gulf countries, they're all autocratic. We made a big history, uh, sorry, uh, did you f no, finish it. your question? That was okay, it. Okay, forgive me for interrupting you. Um, uh, we, we made a big mistake in our history in, uh, as Muslims in that, and I don't say this because I'm a Brit, but I, I say this because it's, it's genuinely proven that uh, Muslims, major Muslim countries, Algeria, Turkey, Syria, even to some extent Egypt, tried to adopt the French secular model. And following the French was a big mistake because there was something else going on in England mm. that preserved the British monarchy, that upheld the balance between the nobility, the aristocracy, and the monarchy and the business elite. And while the French were beheading their kings, we had just beheaded a king uh, in a hundred years prior to that, and then decided that wasn't such a good idea. So we, you know, we got rid of Oliver Cromwell, brought back the monarchy, the restoration, and the, and, and what followed. The, the French continued in that path, and other Europeans followed. But sadly, many Muslims then you know, adopted Napoleon's not just his legal model, but his 
his entire culture of the lack of veneration for the past and tradition and you know, conserving what's worth conserving. And as a result, the democratic model that's been imposed on most of the Middle East has been an Im imitation of the French, or at least in, in a secular ethos. So democracy has been often equated with secular atheism, whereas w if you speak to Sheikh Rashid al-Ghanoushi, who is the Tunisian opposition leader, if you speak to President uh, Erdogan of Turkey, there are faults, and they, uh, I'm not justifying the many things that they do wrong, but what they again and again say is the Anglo-Saxon model of secularism in which religion is not shoved down your throat, but it's one fourth among many in the public space. The religious people are allowed to express themselves, that you can, I mean, the queen is the you head of state. You can't really in Turkey, can you? Because well, Erdogan has just jailed all his opposition. Well, that's part of the problem, because they went to the extreme of trying, wherever you've had French-style secularism, you've had a reaction to it. Uh, you mentioned Turkey, mm -hmm. rightly, but also Algeria, Lebanon, uh, Iran. And it's a disaster because it doesn't... It's well, you it's can see why you, you know, people would then equate, well, Islam and democracy are just not aligned. It, no. it just does not work. See, this is, this is the fundamental fracture that I'm trying to address in the book, that Islam and French-style laicity and laicity-based democracy do not work. There's always a clash. But Islam and the Anglo-Saxon model, there's something there. Mm -hmm. And I think that does work. But you're right to question, well, where in the Muslim world would you look? I mean, I, I could probably offer a, a few attempts and you know, Malaysia broadly comes to mind. Indonesia. Indonesia comes to mind. But Tunisia, even then, with Tunisia. Indonesia, Joko Widodo, Widodo has just ad, uh, uh, announced that his running mate will be a very uh, hard right Muslim cleric. Uh, and he recognizes that he needs to do that because he needs to win over the Muslims, the very conservative Muslims to his base. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a genuine challenge. And that's why you know, it's not governments that protect democracy it's you it's civil society it's mm. us that we've you know we've got to be cognizant and that's why there are a few but there aren't many and this is this is the great struggle of the muslim world because you know democracy is an outcome of, mm. of a cultural space and that's why what i try to do in the book is highlight that cultural space for us so we understand it and support the right side in this battle of ideas i could imagine that you would be in a very difficult position being a british muslim how do you stand or where do you stand with Saudi Arabia attacking Yemen, uh, killing, I think it was 40 children on a school bus using British armaments? Where do you stand on that? Well, I stand on the side of the innocent people and the unjust. Mm. Um, I'm not a government spokesperson, thankfully. And uh, I mean, it's wrong. Saudi Arabia and the Iranians and, the, and those two governments should not be fighting this fight on the back of ordinary people in Yemen, just as the, 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 the Syrians, on the Assad on the one side with Putin, and then you know, uh, us and the, 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 the Turks on the other side fighting it over now, you know, five million displaced people and hundreds of thousands mm. of I mean, it's, it's, it, This is the mo irony of the, and, the, and the sad outcome of the, of the kind of ideas that we're talking about. Mm. That, that's where it leads to, unless you have an open society in which a thousand flowers are allowed to bloom, and this is the outcome, sadly, and I, I, I think I can... Well, I, I don't get involved in Saudi politics, but Saudi Arabia is wrong to be killing innocent people in Yemen. I, mm. I think it should be hard for anyone to say that. Mm. I, I want to come back to, because you proposed the Middle East Union, which when <coughs> I heard you propose it, I will admit I had an outright laugh, <laughs> given what's happening now, but I will sure. come back to that. Sure. Um, you know, we were talking about the failure of um, leadership in the Islamic world. Why do you think that is the case? Is this because 
if you look at a lot of the Islamic governments, and I'm talking about Saudi Arabia, I'm talking about a lot of the Gulf nations, they still want to hold on to their monarchy, but at the same, and, and so for them, that is their identity, and that is how they rule, without really thinking about the... No, it's something Umar, much, much, the, much... The, their community. No, sadly, it goes much further back. I, I, I wish the problem started with the monarchies. Um, there's, a, there's a much deeper problem. Um, the, uh, and in and of themselves, there's nothing wrong with, uh, with, with the Gulf monarchies wanting to remain monarchies. It's how you're a monarch. If it's totalitarian, it's a problem. If it's absolutist, it's a problem. If, you're, if you think giving women the right to drive therefore deserves applaud, I'm sorry, you're wrong. You know, so I it's just where the bar is. Um, but that's where Saudi Arabia is yeah, well wrong, is isn't uh, it? They've given women the right to drive, but then, but then the next week they've decided to execute a female activist. So this is the problem of the kind of monarchy, you know, and that's why, uh, as a. Uh, there's but I put it to you: this is mm. this is the problem too, mm. because this is where I can, I suppose, understand where the extremists are coming com uh, from. Because you look at Saudi Arabia, the host of the two holiest mosques in, in Islam. And they're failing in their leadership of the Muslim country, of, of the Muslim nation itself. So what else can they do but try to lead some sort of a rebellion to try to get the House of Islam back in order? Yeah, but back in order for the extremists means them in control. So we get rid of the, 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 the House of Saud and then we have Al-Qaeda. I mean, it's what Robespierre ended up with in France. You get rid of King Louis the Sixteenth, and you end up with a whole bunch of other tyrants. So that, that's genuinely dangerous. Hence the, f the, the road to reform is much more important. But I put it to you that the problem in the rise of extremism and the rise of tyranny in the Muslim world, be it in, the, in these absolutist monarchies or be it in this totalitarian extremist, is something much deeper. And that, f to my understanding and uh, approach to Muslim history, something happened in the, in, in, in the 13th century in particular that took Europe in the direction of logic, independent thought, free inquiry, that gave birth to the Enlightenment and its consequences and the progress we've seen in the last 300 years of the, the dignity of the individual, the ability to ask whichever and whatever question you want without ramifications on your person. Now that's a very important principle, the open society and its free spirit with the individual at the, r at the heart of it. We had that in early Islam for 600 years. And that's why we were at the, at, the, at, the, at, the, at the height of science and civilization and medicine and astronomy and much else. Now, in, uh, if, if I had to put a date on it, it would be around 1198 when Ibn Rushd or Averroes, the great Muslim philosopher, thinker, logis logician, indeed Qadi or judge in, uh, in, in Cordoba, he was a great proponent of balancing religion with reason. Imam Ghazali comes along and ridicules uh, uh, um, Ibn Sina and Al-Farabi and the other great Muslim free thinkers who preserved Aristotle and Plato when their books were ne 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 neglect neglected in the name of the Dark Ages from 592 onwards. Now, we Muslims then follow this Imam Ghazali lead, amplified by Ibn Taymiyyah and others that, you know, logic and reason is no longer necessary. Just don't ask how. There was a doctrine called Bila Kaif without asking how in belief or in theology, and it manifested also in our actions. The moment we closed the door to free thought and individual uh, liberty to ask thoughts, and we started burning the books of Ibn Rushd and others, and excessively venerating the great masters of the past, I mean, Karl Popper writes about that beautifully in his Open Society and His Enemies, we ended up in a place where when, when Napoleon arrives in Egypt in 1798, Muslims are baffled by the telescope, by the compass, by art, 
the fact that he uses modern cannon uh, and modern gunshot, and they just can't compute that. And from that point onwards, we're still trying to understand what happened. Just buying British weapons to kill innocent Saudi, sorry, uh, Yemeni children, or as the Ottomans did, buying French uh, weaponry and armor to, to kill Arabs in the Arab revolt and the Arab uprising, isn't civilization. You know, civilization is an outcome of, a, of hundreds of years of, of thought, and, uh, and the ancient Greeks and the Persians and the Babylonians and, uh, and others have a lot to do with it. Early Islam preserved that. Muslims learned from the Greeks and Persians, and we were proud of that. Something went wrong from, uh, from the year 1250 onwards, manifest in 1798, and we're still living with the consequences of that. So I, I, I would say the problem is much deeper, and, and how do we solve that is a return to reason. You know, get rid of the mob, move away from the collectivism, let the individual think for he or his or herself freely and come to their conclusions. Now, you, I want to quote something here in your book uh, where you say, the Arab masses cannot be bombed into submission by governments and their armies. Terrorist organizations will continue to be born claiming to want to restore dignity and honor to their imagined form of Islam in which we spoke about. The more we delay, postpone, contain, or block the cry for dignity and participation in government, the messier, bloodier, and more protracted the conflicts of the Middle East will become. We need a long-term comprehensive strategy to unpick the webs of warfare uh, in the region. This is where you propose the Middle East Union, and as I said, I, I laughed and a lot of my Muslim <laughs> friends laughed, given the huge divide that's happening in the Middle East at the moment. But we'll get to that later. But one of the proposals, part of the proposal, is you say that this mi Middle East Union should be mediated or helped by the West. Don't you think the West has done enough already in the Middle East? And, and, and that's part of the problem of where we are today in the uh, Islamic yeah, world? I, I, I was expecting to ask, you know, after Brexit, how dare we suggest <laughs> such a thing for, for uh, yes. you know? You know. <laughs> Um, how could you even help? Well, how can you even think <laughs> about anything to do with the European Union? How dare you? you know? um, but no, honestly, I mean, at the, no, so for example, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not, I, well, I've done my years of blaming the West, I guess. Mm. So I don't do the kind of West bashing excessively because I think the problems are much deeper and much more infrastructural. I mean, you know, what? Really? You don't think no. America's invasion of Iraq had anything well, to do with the I rise of ISIS I or Baathist I go, I go much further back. I, I mean, you're a journalist, so you look at the news agenda. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I have the blessing of actually moving Stepping back and back. taking a much mm. broader uh, and longer historical view. And I just find that, uh, you know... Well, the division of in Palestine... Uh, yeah, but you know. Um, you know, Palestine and the, the, the Middle East was controlled by the Ottomans, the Turks, for 400 years. Do you want to blame the West for slavery and colonialism? I mean, my friends, the Turks, were the greatest of the, of the, of the slave owners, the, the creators of the harem, you know, the, the, the eunuchs which were taken, white slaves and mm -hmm. black slaves, by force for a thousand years from across Africa, uh, in 950 years to be precise, from across Africa, and then the, the genitalia were removed by, the, by, by force uh, by the Coptic Christians because they did it so well. And then, because of FGM, female genital mutilation, in Egypt, six months to heal, and then taken you know, with pipes in the genitalia to urinate into Constantinople to protect the harem of the Ottoman. I mean, for all of the flaws of the West, we have got to accept that we as Muslims have had the institution of slavery unashamedly and without apology, f and the West has gone bent over backwards to apologize mm. again and again in every country, Kevin Rudd here, 
Uh, but, but, you know, we haven't even had an admission in the Muslim world that slavery was a problem for a thousand years. No, you know, there are verses in the Quran that talk about slavery. I'm presuming it's because the, the, the Muslim world is still going through this shame, this loss of confidence that we were talking about. But also so denial. how can they also even, denial. you know, admit that they've done any, anything wrong? But, but I, w I want to go back to the West helping out to, you know, create this Middle East union. There's, there would definitely be a colonial hang-up here, and this is why the Middle East will not be able to accept any help yeah, in I terms I of trying I'm to create afraid. some sort of Middle I, East yeah, union. See, this is where I disagree, I'm afraid, for, for, for two reasons. One, I've seen in business meetings as well as in political meetings, you leave a group of Arabs and Muslims and others in a room and ask them to come to a conclusion. Very, very rarely does a conclusion emerge. You put them in a room with a group of Europeans and Americans, they are dead keen to impress, and the behavioral <laughs> pattern and psychology changes. <laughs> so I think there's something there to learn in terms of how did the United States of America emerge? It's a union, the United States of America. How did the European Union emerge? It's a union. Even the United Kingdom is a union of four, five, five nations. Uh, four nations. But, but we are a union. Yeah. Yeah, England, Scotland, Ireland, Wales, yeah. Yeah, four nations. Maybe I'm including other parts of the world, <laughs> the eternal <laughs> colonialist, you know. So, um, so, so, so there is. So we're unions now in the Middle East. I accept that the Middle East is in a complete mess, but don't forget for a moment that the concept of a European Union was born, advocated in the thickness of the fog of war in the Second World War. It was in the height of the 1930s and 40s that there were great thinkers and there were great statesmen that said, we've got to get beyond this cycle. And, and my last point on this is that every single issue that was at the forefront of Europe for four or five hundred years is now at the forefront of the Middle East. Dictatorships, religious extremism, political tyranny, mass unemployment. There were resource shortages in Europe, but we have water shortages across the Middle East. And unlike Europe, we have a much greater cohesion of faith and history and culture and languages. Mm. The ingredients for re regional integration are much more ripe in the Middle East than they were in Europe. If Europe can make a thing of it for the last 70 years, bar Brexit, and without Brexit, I mean, the <laughs> European, I mean we, we were never really Europeans, you know, we were always <laughs> people apart. Um, and we have our own English-speaking zone and laws and liberties were different. But th for the Europeans, I think, if for 70 years they can maintain peace, we c you know, I, I can't see a better idea on the table for, for the Middle East. And finally, this is not my idea. Uh, this has been in the region burning alive for at least the last 110 years, mm -hmm. from the Ba'athist to the Islamists. And if we don't do this or get behind or at least to be seen, to be getting behind it. ISIS, do you think that's a national project? It's a transnational project. The Muslim Brotherhood, do you think they're talking about one country? Our enemies are already thinking in terms of multilateralism and a much greater entity. And we can't keep thinking about, oh, little Qatar, what can we do for you? Oh, little Kuwait, how can we help you? And little Tunisia, oh, you're looking very... No, it's, the, the, it's a much bigger project across the region and a much bigger problem that requires a regional solution. All right, I, I want to come back to that, um, but let's pause for a little bit. I, I just want to remind you that we will be taking uh, questions to Ed uh, in a few minutes or so. So I think there's some microphones that are around. Oh, okay. Um, so just get your quan uh, questions ready. Um, please try to make them as brief as possible. We don't have that much time because we want to try to get through as many people as, as possible. So, so we'll bring the microphones around. Um, just after I ask this particular question. I feel something coming on. Yes. Go on. <laughs> the Middle East. Yeah. The Middle East Union. Here's my laugh coming. Now. There's a huge Sunni-Shia divide. There's, uh, listen, if they can't even get their act together in the OIC, the Organization of Islamic uh, Committee, uh, it, how 
do you even fathom that there could be a union of Middle East Islamic nations? Because I have a higher expectation of the Middle Easterners. And I mean, if, if the Europeans can get through the Reformation and have the 30-year war and come yes, to the Treaty of Westphalia... These are Arabs oh, But these are Arabs. <laughs> this is the point. <laughs> if anyone else said that... We know, we know. You these know. are very deep tribal conflict rivalry and yet here. Lawrence of Arabia led them to a situation where they have their own nation states and, and so we look to a colonial no, power no, no because th that that sentiment that sentiment is my point that they're, they're savages and they're Arabs and they're not the same as us that was that was the sentiment that many of the colonial fighters were putting on the table to you know we deal with only the Turks the Egyptians and the Persians because they're the real nation state that the, 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 the Arabs the Bedouins and they're just a ragtag force from the desert well, I, I disagree with that because I think you know the human condition is such that it can and it has been elevated. You look at the the the. the I mean, you go meet the foreign ministers, then you have. I mean, you worked in the Middle East for a number of mm. years. The, the Middle. I mean, if you meet Sheikh Khalid from Bahrain, you go and meet Sheikh uh, Abdullah Nahyan or Sheikh Zayed and Abdullah bin Zayed Nahyan from from the from the Emirates, or even Adil Al Jubair from uh, the, the, the from Saudi Arabia. Uh, I mean, they are as erudite as any. I I venture that. If I put those three, or even any one of them, in the room with my own foreign secretary now, you know, they would not confuse China with Japan, <laughs> <laughs> despite being married to a lady of one of those two <laughs> denominations or, or countries. You know, so they're much more erudite. So I, I wouldn't write off the Arabs, by the way, is what I'm saying, mm. especially the Gulf Arabs. I have, you know, they look, they're an ancient people. They're merchants. The Prophet Muhammad was was a merchant who was a fund manager for his. Know, boss who then he married they they you know, in the Quran talks about it it was safe they you know they, they we, we shouldn't yes there are problems now but every civilization goes through the dark ages you know, even the Romans were destroyed by the Goths and they spent at least 800 years in complete obliteration the Arabs now are going through a phase and I, I, I think at the end of it if we engage if we persevere if we help them we will get them to a place where they are the true inheritors of the Islamic faith they are the ones who gave us this notion of chivalry, of the belief in the one God. They took it away from Judaism and Islam, sorry, Judaism and Christianity, and universalized it with, with the Prophet of Mercy, Alameen. Yes, it's gone sour, yes, it's gone south, but to hell it can be br brought back. And I think that's, that's what we've got to do within the House of Islam and global civilization around us, help us in trying to get this house back to where it was. Because, you know, the reason why, you know, Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab, the founder of the Wahhabi doctrine inside Saudi Arabia, 1798, Napoleon arrived in, 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 in Egypt, but 1798, something else happened. There was an uprising against the Ottomans in the Arabian desert, and one of the things that Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab did, he did two things. Yes, he called to extremism and one f his extreme notion of uh, just Tawheed, the one God, but he destroyed tombs and shrines in his uh, local area because he didn't like local Muslims uh, gathering there to worship God at the shrines of the saints. Sound familiar? I mean, Puritan England, mm. you know. But secondly, and this is more dangerous, and that's still with us, for the first hundred years, no, uh, he, he, for the first time in 500 years in, in, in that part of the Ottoman Empire in the Arabian desert, he brings uh, a lady who's accused of adultery, and for those of you who don't know what adultery is anymore, because it's not a word that's used as much, you know, sexual relations outside marriage. Um, he, he brings a woman accused of that, and he has her stoned in public to death. Now, that culture is at the, at the heart of the problem, and that culture, I'm afraid, is still there in parts of Saudi Arabia. And it's that culture we've got to reverse, the, 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 the sexism, the misogyny, the hatred of women, and this extreme literalism driven by religion. 
get ourselves away from that and towards reason and openness and you see different societies emerge. It's doable, but we've just got to fight the hard fight, I as like Europe did. I like the way you say the Arab nations are going through a phase, like it's just a teenage phase. Once we'll, they'll, they'll grow out of it. They'll, they'll so are the Americans, by the way. It's a teenage <laughs> phase going on over there. You know. Yeah. Young nations, you know, have Young nations, I suppose, yes. Yeah. Um, if there are any questions, could you please raise your hand? And while we get a microphone to you, I want to ask you one very pertinent question um, that's relevant to Australia. Here in Australia, I think the Muslims make up like about 2%, but, you know, they're a favourite headline every now and then, particularly during political issues. What message would you say to a young Australian Muslim who almost every week is told something along the lines of, you know, all terrorists are Muslims, or uh, they're here, they're going to spread Sharia law, uh, we should ban them, we should stop having Muslims in Australia. What do you say to a young Australian Muslim who hears that time and time and time again? to look to your parents and your parents' parents and your parents' parents from a form of Islam that is one that, you know, at, at ease with society, that's compassionate, that's kind. There's a reason why your parents or, you know, you came to this country because you believe in its openness and its civilization and its sense of democracy. I would also point policymakers and others to see the Aftar who sat here. And he's, a, he's a prominent British Muslim, but he understands the community here. I don't have enough of a grasp other than to say that what I see time to time, not from ordinary Australian Muslims, because they're, they're just as Australian as anybody else, and if they're not, you should help them become that. Um, if there's a problem around integration, you should absorb them, welcome them, and uh, help them integrate. But, but, but to absorb reason and revelation and think that those two forces can live in, uh, in, in harmony. And I'd end by saying that this is their country, you know, and they are children of this soil like everybody else, and they have every claim to it. And, and contribute, be part of this country, you know, get involved in politics and involved in business and give give back, and more that they seem to be giving back, the less that there is extremism and terrorism. And when there is extremism and terrorism, when there are clerics who are thumping tables and calling for uh, implementation of their notion of Sharia, oppose them, isolate them, expel them, don't be seen to be with them. Because there is some of this, you know, I see it online, nonsense coming out of communities here, you know, that, that women can't dress in a particular mm. way, that, you know, we can't accept homosexuality, that we can't, you know, end all of that bigotry, challenge it, don't be afraid of it. Isolate it and people will welcome you and accept you. For as long as you're silent on your extremist terrorist flank, there will be suspicion about you. So it's a two-way journey, I think. Mm. Uh, let's get the first question. I, I believe the microphone's... Hi, um, I'm a practicing Muslim, alhamdulillah. I'm walking away deeply impressed. I, I believe you've pointed everything, which is the issue we're facing. I was actually wondering, Europe, we're obviously at an ex existential crisis, the Muslims over there clearly the French secular system, as well as the fact like Denmark is slapped a fine, you cover your head uh, or you cover your face. And then obviously in France, secular Turkey to one point when I was growing up, I'm 38, when I was growing up, if you had a headscarf, you obviously couldn't go to school, you couldn't win, you'd be expelled, you couldn't go into any official place. Why has it reached a point in Europe that all the ghettos, all like Islam is now a fringe element like, you know, how they talked about how a French woman, her citizenship, the Algerian woman, she didn't shake hands. They revoked her citizenship at the citizenship ceremony. Why are we at such a crossroads of our religion? I mean, I'm a practicing Muslim, alhamdulillah. I've lived abroad 20 years now, coexisting very peacefully, very strongly practicing as well. Europe, which is so secular, doesn't seem accepting. 
all the Scandinavian countries have now reached a which like refugees, predominantly Muslim, will be stripped of their gold and property or whatever they bring because they're not associated, it shouldn't be a burden on the welfare society. Why has it reached that point over there? It's interesting that um, you touched on French secularism at the very start. Now, uh, laicity is, is different from the, the, the secularism. How long have we got? I don't want to take up too much time. Yeah, we've got about five minutes. Okay, so I can spend at least a minute on trying to answer the question properly. <laughs> um, uh, secularism in and of itself is not a problem. We've got to accept that, admit that. Secular pluralism allows for us to be who we are. If it wasn't for secularism, there would not be Muslims living in the larger numbers that we do in the West because we would be heretics and blasphemers and therefore have no space in the West. It's because of secularism that we're there and therefore we should recognize that and not burn that bridge that allows us to be who we are. Absolutely important that secularism is fully upheld. But the secularism, to my mind, that works is the, is, is, is the the, 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 the Anglo-secularism that has thrived in America, Canada, here, New Zealand, uh, and, and indeed the, the UK. And wherever that's gone in the Muslim world, you see that Muslims are much more democratic to some extent in Pakistan with all of its problems, um, to some extent in India, one of the largest democracies in the world, because there's, there's, it's not Muslim democracy, but the many m Muslims there thrive. So that's one issue, that French laicity rubs up Muslims the wrong way again and again and again, that you can't talk about God, you can't cover your head, you can't embrace your piety in, in public because it's seen as proselytizing or challenging the secular states. Of and when you bring that to Turkey, you have a similar reaction from among Muslims. So that's one side of the problem. The other side of the problem that Muslims have become sadly Arabized of late, that old Indian Mughal Islam or the old Turkish Islam or the Malaysian Islam, Ind Indonesian Islam, African Islam, which at its core believed in one God, the Quran is the word of God and an afterlife, that's it. Everything else is tier two and open to debate and discussion. Um, that unless you wear a headscarf, you're not Muslim. That unless you have a you know, long, un unkempt beard, you're not Muslim. Unless you're kind of supporting, stoning people, you're not Muslim. You've lost your smile, and therefore you're really Muslim. You know, the, ha <laughs> the, the more harsh, the more ugly, the more anti-music, anti-art, anti-liberty, anti-women, anti-gay. Yeah, yeah, the more, the, yeah, so the, the, okay. I mean, but I've met lots of gay people in Saudi Arabia, <laughs> so that's, you know, they are, they They're exist. quiet. Yeah, yeah, uh, so yeah they are the quiet. Cult, so yeah. that's not Islam. Don't give me that that's authentic because it's not. So I think it's a combination of two extremisms. The, the laicity of the French combined with the Arabized extremism of the extremists, they collide and Muslims are increasingly forced to choose and they retreat. And that's where you have, oh, I can't shake your hand or I can't listen to music or I can't draw art and all of this that leads to the European mainstream thinking, well, well, who are these people, what's going on? And I put to you that my father went to the UK in 1953. I mean, he, he genuinely liked England, that's why he went there. And the millions who've come here, because it's, it's because of an embrace of freedom that they're here, and we should not compromise on our free values for a moment, but embrace and accept and invite Muslims to embrace them, and they will. Are there any more questions? I've, I've got one, two, there. I want to try to squeeze in two if it's possible, but you've got to make your questions very brief. Quite recently, uh, not in a scientific way, but I picked up an article in my doctor's waiting room in The Economist about Muslims and about the difficulty that Muslims have in abandoning the religion. <coughs> and particularly, it was a United States study that said that in the United States, 23% of people in the United States when asked in the survey mm -hmm. said they're yeah. not I'm actually aware. Muslims, yeah. although when you they won't tell anybody unless it's just in a secret, un unidentified um, thing. And what was more interesting about it was uh, teenagers. Teenagers, some figure like 25% of them were saying they're not really Muslims, but they could not mm. get out of it 
because of their family structure. Sure. Now my question to you is, how representative are you, who is highly intelligent, highly educated, how many people in your, in the Islamic faith here or anywhere else would have the same ideas that you have? I can't answer that question, I'm afraid, because I don't know the, the Muslim community here in, in, in Australia well enough, but uh, um, uh, uh, on, on atheism, I mean, it's interesting you described it as a religion. Uh, and, I mean, all power to atheists. If people want to leave the faith and have no, f or, or leave any faith, it's entirely their choice. Um, and, and in early Islam, Shaykh Abdullah bin Bayyah, who I referenced earlier, does a brilliant job is bringing about examples of people who came with the Prophet from Mecca to Medina, lost their faith in him, went back to Medina and were not punished. Blasphemy laws in countries such as Pakistan are part, are part of the problem. If somebody wants to leave the faith, we, sh we should not be forcing people to remain Muslim because it creates hip hypocrisy. It doesn't create piety. And yes, in, in, in the West there are more people who are increasingly leaving Islam. Um, but it's, it's their individual choice. And you know, atheism is growing in the West, but I, I warn you as a, as, a, as, a, as a believer and as a Westerner that atheism leads to nihilism. Nihilism leads to loss. Loss means to lack of defense. Lack of defense means the end of what we have. And this is a warning from Nietzsche when he wrote about, uh, in Thus Spoke Zarathustra, that you know, we have killed God with our own hands and there is so much blood that we can't, there's not enough water to wash the blood away. He foresaw what happens when you remove the founding block of your civilization, i.e. Christianity, Judaism, and the ancient Greeks. By all means, feel free to become atheist, but for a moment, don't think that then when you're sending out soldiers to defend civilization, they're going to come back and they'll be, be I mean, go to the, 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 the Abbey in Westminster. Why is it so venerated? Because Everything is about defending God, liberty, freedom, queen, country, something worthy of defense. So if you lose your faith, you know, lose it quietly and just do whatever you wish. Mm. But don't go around telling people that faith is a load of cobweb because ultimately what you're destroying is not a religion. You're destroying the very civilization on which we all sit and stand and celebrate. I have to say too, I, I would question that survey as well because I will say that I was born Muslim, but I don't feel I can call myself Muslim because I don't practice. I have a lot of respect for people who are Muslims who practice. Mm -hmm. So I will say I was born Muslim, but then I don't go around saying I'm an atheist as well. I do believe in God, and I think it's a mixture of several religions, whatever. So I would question that survey, and I don't know, you know if people say I'm not Muslim, but I don't want to say I'm but not but Muslim. But at the same so time, we've made a huge mm -hmm. mistake that we, we've tried to stop people from leaving faith, and mm -hmm. those like Ayan Hesiali who've left, we've yeah. tried to get them killed, which is mm -hmm. absolutely wrong, uh, absolutely wrong. And if mm -hmm. somebody wants to leave, by all means, leave. Actually, one very, very quick question. And by the way, we have 1.6 billion people. It's not like we're short of people. You know, yeah. so, you know. <laughs> Come join the club. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, I actually, uh, first, Ed, I want to say I think you're a very brave man. And I want to actually uh, introduce Ayan Hirsi Ali and what's currently happening now. Yes, last year I was booked to go and see Ayan Hirsi Ali. I'd only read two of her books, booked my daughter to go. Uh, the venue was harassed the insurance company and the organisers were uh, harassed and threatened with protests. And uh, la the, uh, sh previously she'd come at the Writers' Festival where she criticised our government for not doing enough to stop female circumcision in the western suburbs of Sydney. And I was, uh, I have to say, I went, wow, I, what have I done? Oh, I've just lost my freedom. And then I felt like I'd lost my freedom again because I was too scared to complain about it. 
Now, I, I found that really profound last year. I'm a mother of four daughters and uh, then also, then I took the time to read My Daughter Does Go to Sydney University. There is a course being held there which is called Accommodating Muslims Under Common Law. Well, I actually read the textbook. I didn't rely on the papers. I went to the effort of actually reading the book and I found it really alarming. And they in the book, the author criticises our judges, our police, our solicitors, our, all our law enforcement that um, Muslims are being particularly targeted and that young uh, Muslim men have to fulfil their obligations under Sharia and if only we would allow Sharia to be introduced, it would pacify the Muslim community. Again, I cannot tell you the alarm that I feel and obviously not from my generation. I am talking... I found this book, which is now funded by our government, or the course, full of propaganda, and I urge everyone to read it. And it's, I, I just found it very troubling. So I won't take too much of your time, sorry. Um, if the question is, should Ayan Hirsi Ali be free to speak here in Australia, it's for the government to decide. But, um, I mean, of course you should be free. Uh, and, I mean, the textbook, I don't aware, I'm not aware of it, but I, I, I can't comment. But your, your general point, I take back to what I said earlier, that we already have the, the, the main aims of the Sharia in Australia. It exists. There is no need for extra Sharia. If you said, as an Australian, or your government said, that we as Muslims could not have our own cemeteries, or we could not have our own mosques, or we could not name our children as Muslims, or those of those Muslim women who wanted to wear their cover their hair, as you know, Jewish and Greek women did before them, wanted to, and you said, nope, that's completely uh, impossible. It's banned. In other words, what's called a sha'air al-Islam. If you if you declared war on the symbols of the faith, then we would have a genuine problem, and there would be Islamophobia and whatnot. But but you haven't done any of that. So there, I mean, Sharia already exists as far as we understand it, and as far as we know. So there isn't a need for any of that. If the government's done what you say, then obviously. It needs visiting and revising. But I would say that people like Ayan Hirsi Ali haven't just left the faith. They're on the record of calling for a war on Islam and Muslims. And they're, they're, yeah, but the Reformation is a more recent call. The, the, the earlier calls you know, at, the height of the, at the height of the war on terror to say every, every Muslim is an enemy. And you know, we should be, as she said, we should be at war with all Islam. I mean, translate that. I haven't seen that being taken back yet. So if you want to organize a debate here where you invite Ayan, I'm happy to get on the plane and fly across for 22 hours to help settle this debate. <laughs> Can I moderate it? I'd love <laughs> Absolutely. <to be> <laughs> <laughs> you know? you know? uh, we're going to have to leave it there, uh, unfortunately. Ed, it's been lovely talking to you. Thank you so Thank much you. for joining us. Thank Please make welcome to Ed Thank you. Want more? Delve into our archive at sydneyoperahouse.com slash ideas. You can also watch more talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House on our YouTube channel.